Right, hi all. Uh, my name is Keith. If uh, you know Pastor David, I'm uh, one of his cousins, so it's my claim to fame. Uh, Owen and, and Abby and Sophie are my little niece and nephews, which is cool. So um, we're going to get back into 1 Corinthians, as Eric said. And Eric's titled this section of 1 Corinthians, A Life Centered on Messiah, A Call to Love. So it's been, what, three months since we've been in the book? So if you've forgotten everything about 1 Corinthians, it's totally fine. Or if you're here for the first time tonight, um, have no fear. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 8, and then I'll pray, and then I'll do a quick refresh for the first seven chapters. Okay? So if you do have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we, who, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, there is one God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All things are from you, and we exist for you, Lord. You created all things through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we exist and through whom we have our salvation. Your Spirit gives us power and grace to live and to love you, to be sanctified in your truth. We belong, holy Lord, body and soul to you. Yet, Lord, this week and throughout our whole lives, we've exalted ourselves and and made ourselves out to be gods. We ought to pray, not our will, but your will be done. And yet, instead we prayed, Lord, our will be done, not yours. We've not considered our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our classmates, your people, as more important than ourselves. Instead, we've lived in our own selfishness, Lord. Forgive us. For Christ's sake, Lord, Father, forgive us. We thank you, Father, for the time to come to your word. And we ask that you teach us to love like your son, Teach us that Christ is King, that we're His beloved subjects. We ask that you help us, Lord, to hear Your Word. We thank You in our precious Savior's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, First Corinthians is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to a city in Corinth in the first century A.D. to a city called Corinth in the first century century A.D. This Corinthian church was not a healthy church at all. Right. Uh, although the believers had received the gospel from Paul and they were not lacking in any spiritual gift, they had many, many issues. In the first seven chapters alone, 
we've already learned first that the church was divided. They're divided over silly things like which human teacher they followed. Some said Paul, some said Apollo, some said Cephas, some said Christ. They're also arrogant. They're obsessed with and boasted in their own human wisdom rather than in the Lord. Further on, chapter 5, we see that they tolerated rather than disciplining a member who is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul is completely scandalized. Even unbelievers don't tolerate this sin. They also sued one another in court over disputes instead of trying to reconcile in love. Lastly, they're worldly. They're even joining themselves to prostitutes, which we'll talk more about later, which is almost unbelievable. And lastly, in chapter 7, we see the dishonored marriage and the marriage covenant. Later on in the book, past chapter 8, we see that women were refusing to submit to authority. Some were feasting during the communion meal, while other members had no food. Some were exalting themselves as more important than other church members. Some were speaking in tongues and bringing the church service into chaos. And some were even teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. So in one letter, Paul had a lot of work to do. <laughs> but tonight, we're going to talk about only chapter 8. And in this chapter, Paul begins to address an issue that the Corinthians actually had brought up to him. Namely, food, specifically meat, sacrificed to idols. Okay, so who came in here thinking, man, I really have this important question to ask Eric. Eric, what about meat sacrificed to idols? Like anyone? Okay, I didn't think so. Um, but to the, Corinthians, to the Corinthians, this question of meat sacrificed to idols was huge, huge. Chapter 8, 9, and 10 is all about this one issue. So to us, we're like, eh, like pretty irrelevant, right? Well, um, who's ever been to a Chinese restaurant? Hopefully everyone, because Chinese food is great. Okay, um, <laughs> the last time you walked into a Chinese restaurant, you probably walked right past an idol. It was probably that you know old man statue or that red demon thing with food or incense in front of it. Those aren't just nice cultural decorations. They're being worshipped as gods. Right? If you've ever been to an Afghani or Pakistani or Persian restaurant, if it's legit, the meat there was what we would call uh, certified halal, H-A-L-A-L, which in Arabic means permissible. Right? To be certified halal means, a lot, among other things, that it's actually sacrificed in the name of Allah, the God of Islam, in a way prescribed by the Quran. That means, if you've eaten this kind of food before, you and I have eaten food sacrificed in the name of false gods, if not explicitly sacrificed to that false god. These false gods whom Paul actually calls demons. So maybe you've never realized that, but I have a question for you. Is that okay? If it is, why? If it's not, why not? So maybe 1 Corinthians 8 is actually a little more relevant than we thought. I titled this sermon, uh, A Self-Denying Gospel Love. And the main point, if you forget everything, the main point I want you to remember is love your brother, not your rights. Love your brother, not your rights. I think you have an outline that has the bullet points. Um, I'll just read through really quick. The first point is a failure to love, how arrogant knowledge misses the point. The second is an inverted love, why loving your rights destroys God's children and sins against Christ. And the third is a gospel love. Deny yourself to love your brother. So the blanks are failure, inverted, and gospel. So let's dig in the first point. A failure, a failure to love, how arrogant knowledge misses the point. Uh, read with me verse 1 and 3 again. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So as I've already mentioned, this whole passage is about food off to idols. Right? In the first century world, the primary way of, of worshiping false gods was to offer an animal sacrifice to that god and feast on the meat in the idol's temple. Because of the abundance of the meat, the priests would actually take the excess sacrificed meat and go sell it in the marketplace. So if you lived in Corinth in the first century, there's two ways to get meat. Number one, you eat it at a pagan temple. Or number two, you go to the market after it had already been sacrificed to a pagan idol. In these first three verses of 1 Corinthians 8, Paul does two things. He destroys a bad foundation, and he actually builds up a new foundation. So first, he destroys the foundations of arrogant knowledge. Uh, look at me at verse 1 again. Um, it's starting with, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In just this chapter alone, if you read through it, God, or excuse me, Paul talks about knowledge or knowing 11 separate times. That's a lot. This chapter is only in 13 verses. So 11 separate times. He does this because the Corinthian culture worshipped wisdom and knowledge. Kind of similar to how Americans today worship choice and liberty. It is to such a culture that Paul says, your knowledge puffs up. Uh, in other parts of 1 Corinthians, the word translated uh, puffs up is also translated as arrogant. Uh, if you look at, uh, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 5.2, it says, you are arrogant. That, that's the same word for puffs up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Same word for puffs up. Right? So, this knowledge puffs up could actually be translated as this knowledge makes arrogant. But I love the translation of puffs up. I love it because basically it's saying you got a big head or you got a big ego or you're like a balloon full of lots of air that's really full of nothing. Right? Big head. If I'm puffed up, I'm full of myself, I overestimate my importance, and the God that I worship is the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. The perplexing problem about puffed up people, uh, try saying that five times fast, um, is that they don't know they're puffed up. Right? They're blind to the fact that they're arrogant. They're blind to the fact they have big heads and small hearts. They're blind to the fact that they're blind. That's why in verse 2, Paul says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Um, do you feel the sting in that sentence? He's basically saying, if you think you know, you don't even really know. An arrogant man thinks that he's sufficient, that he's adequate, that he's complete, that his knowledge makes him strong. Right? But Paul says, nope, you don't know. You don't know. So for us, I, wa I wonder how you take that. Um, do you think Paul is talking about some other guy out there, maybe, I don't know, across the room or on the other side of the room? Um, if you do, can I say something kind of hard? Paul's not talking to the other guy. The Word of God is speaking to you. The Word of God pops our bubble of self-importance. It destroys the foundations of our arrogance. You know, destroying foundations is supposed to hurt a little bit. Right? We all have blind spots. And devastatingly, we're the most blind about ourselves. So ironically, if you don't think this applies to you, it probably does. Um, wounding our pride is part of the path to humility and true maturity, right? Remember James 4, 6. I know you all know this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
So let's be humble. This chapter is for us, okay? Okay, so we destroyed the bad foundation of arrogant love. Now we're going to build the foundation of, sorry, we destroyed the foundation of arrogant knowledge. We're going to build the foundation now of edifying love. The goal of Bible knowledge, as 1 Timothy 1.5 says, is love. The goal of Bible knowledge is love. Love is the opposite of arrogant knowledge. Right? The end of verse 1, it says, but love builds up. And we know what that word means. To, to build up means to encourage, to, make, to, make, to edify, to make them stronger. It's to cheer someone on in the race towards Jesus. Right? At a really basic level, just think with me, love is fundamentally other-oriented. Right? The model of arrogant knowledge says, it's all about me. Look at me, look at my big balloon head. But the model of humble love says, it's not about me. It's about God and others. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-5 says, Love is not arrogant, right? That's our word. Arrogant, not puffed up or rude. It does not insist on its own way. So I think we know love. Um, I won't talk about it too much today because it's chapter 13. I think we know love when we, when we see it. But let's ask an even more fundamental question. Where does that love actually come from? Where does that love come from? And I would say, according to verse 3, that loving God leads to this true knowledge. Verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The Corinthians were so obsessed with knowledge, so obsessed with themselves, but they totally missed the point of Christianity. In their arrogance, they didn't ask the question, do I love God? They only asked the question, am I right? They're like the people who, you know, read a ton of Christian books and listen to sermons and debate about theology, but they're jerks, and they're argumentative, and it seems like they don't know anything about the love of Christ. They've not concerned themselves with weightier things of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. They know what's right, but they fail to ask, does God know me? Look at the irony here, right? In seeking out knowledge above all things, the Corinthians didn't attain to it. Paul says, you don't know anything. But in seeking out this knowledge alone, they also broke the greatest commandment to love God and to love others, even as they loved themselves. If instead they sought to love God above all else, like verse 3, but if anyone loves God, they would have gained the highest knowledge, being known by God. He is known by God, second part of verse 3. And that's not to say that knowledge and love are opposed, right? Like, I hope you don't have that false dichotomy in your head. Um, other place in uh, Philippians 1, it says, or Paul says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So they should go together. But for the Corinthians, it didn't. What Paul is saying is exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as not to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Knowing God is 10,000 times better than just knowing about him. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, so that's a lot of data, right? So let's, let's come down a little bit. Um, I want to talk to you if you think you're a Christian, if you, if you call yourself a Christian, right? And I want to ask you, what makes you a Christian? Is it because you know certain things and you agree with certain things? Like, there's one God, uh, the Bible is God's true word, if anyone believes in Jesus, they should not perish but have eternal life, you should go to church, you should honor your parents, not envy, a murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, curse, cheat, etc., is that what makes you a Christian? Now, don't get me wrong. Those things are correct. Like, the Bible does say those things. But knowing those things isn't sufficient. At the heart of Christianity is loving God and being known by Him. 
knowing God and being known by him. I think everyone here would probably be able to say, yeah, Jesus died for sinners. But what I want to know is, do you think Jesus died for you? Everyone here would probably admit, yeah, like, God loves us. But I want to know, do you believe that God loves you? Has your soul been transformed? Has your heart been transformed? Does the love of God for you cause your heart to burst out in praise? Or do you just only sing when we're singing songs together? I want your heart to say, I love my Lord Jesus Christ. He died for me, and all that I am is his. That's true knowledge, the true knowledge that the Corinthians didn't have. It's not what you know. It's capital W, who you know, who you love. It's not what you know. It's capital who, who knows you. Okay, so let's back up again. Uh, Paul has destroyed the false foundation of arrogant knowledge, and he's established the new foundation of self-giving love. And now, with this foundation set, he's going to talk about food sacrifice titles. That brings us to point two. An inverted love, why loving your rights destroys God's children and sins against Christ. So we're going to walk through this argument, and Paul's argument is not super complex, but pretty interesting. So as we go through it, try to keep two groups in mind, okay? Uh, the strong over here and the weak over here, okay? So the strong are those that believe eating food sacrificed to idols is not sin. That's the strong. The weak believe that those that eating food to idols is sin. Okay? And if you're interested, I got those two terms from Romans 14. You can go read that later if you like. So first, we're going to look at the weak, the plight of the weak. Uh, verse 4, if you read it with me. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Remember the strong? They say, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. They're not really sacrificed to anything. There's no, God but one, there's no God but one, the true God of the Bible. Now, is that true? Yeah, it's true, right? Look at verse 5. For although there may be so-called so gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, right? they're so-called gods. They're not real gods. Remember, <coughs> Corinth was part of the Roman Empire. Right? And you know, like, who studied Greek mythology before in high school? Okay, some of us. So, you know the gods that the Greeks believed in? Um, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, etc. The Romans just basically stole those gods and renamed them. So, Zeus became Jupiter, Poseidon became Neptune, Hades became Pluto, Apollo became Apollo. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> so, all these false gods were who these Romans worshipped, right? But the Christians rejected these false gods, and they believed in one true and living God. In our culture today, no, it's not really a big deal to be monotheist, right? You could probably meet a lot of monotheists outside. But in the first century, it's a scandalous thing. Everyone was a polytheist. So let's give credit to where credit's due. The strong got it right. There is one true God. As verse 6 says, if you look at it with me, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So I imagine at this point, when the Corinthian church is hearing this letter, the strong hear this, and they go, Ha! We told you, weak! You're totally wrong! We're Paul! And he agrees with us. But not so fast, right? Even while Paul says to the strong, yes, meat sacrifice to idols is actually meat sacrifice to nothing, he doesn't say, so go for it, eat all the things. He never says that. Instead, look at verse 7 with me. He points to the strong and says, however... Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, 
eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. In other words, look around. There are people that don't agree with you, strong. You know, but these weak brothers, they don't. They really think it's sin. So let's take another step back. Uh, concepts of strong and weak and conscience, they're all kind of abstract, okay? So let's, let me try to illustrate this with a couple of stories. Uh, first, I want to talk about movies. Right? I know a preacher who was raised to believe that watching any movie is sin. Okay. Now, for sure, watching some movies is definitely sinful. I think we can all agree about that. Uh, Psalm 103, sorry, Psalm 101, verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. But is watching any movie, like, I don't know, Veggie Tales, sinful? If it is, then like, GG my childhood. Um, yet, <laughs> as a child, right, this preacher, he confessed that he actually snuck out once to go watch a movie with his friends. Um, I don't even think it was a bad movie. It was probably just like some kid movie. Maybe Bambi, I think. Um, <laughs> he's a little older. <laughs> um, but the entire time he's at the theater, he felt guilty. He felt guilty because his conscience was telling him that this is sin. Now, make most, no mistake, his conscience was not working according to Bible knowledge, right? It was working according to some culture. Yet, nonetheless, the point is this. By watching the movie, which itself is not sin, he went against, against his conscience and felt like he sinned. So is he strong or weak? He's weak. He's weak. His, his conscience is not informed by the scriptures. He's weak. Okay, second story. Um, when I was a kid, around preschool age, um, somehow it got into my little head that hobo was a bad word, like a curse word. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I guess I was a legalistic kid who made up rules and expected everyone to follow them, right? So hobo just means migrant worker. It's not an insult, so just being clear. Um, but I had a best friend, as far as four-year-old best friends go, who would always call everyone a hobo. <laughs> I, th I think he was using it as jest, kind of like goofball or like dodo, right? I mean, he didn't mean it as a curse word, obviously. He's four. Um, but I'm tripping all over myself when he says it. Uh, in this case, am I the strong or the weak? I'm the weak, right? He's the strong. I'm the weak because I think something that's not sin is sin. My friend who's the strong rightly understands, yeah, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a curse word, Keith. Uh, all right, so let me try to bring this strong, weak co uh, conscience concept back in the Corinthian context, okay? If you were a Christian in the Corinthian church, you probably would have been a first-generation Christian. This is the first century, right? Jesus rose again from the dead, 33 AD. You're 30, years, just 30 to 60 years after. You're probably the only monotheist in your entire family. Before Christ, you would have been living like everyone else, worshiping pagan gods and pagan idols and, and pagan temples. All your life, you would have gone with your family to the temple, worshipped the stone and wooden idols, seen the blood of the animals as they were slaughtered, smelled the fire and barbecue, tasted the meat. Maybe you would have seen even some of your older family members go into the back to worship with sacred prostitutes, since that's part of pagan idolatry. It's disgusting, but that's paganism. Um, they worshipped a moral pleasure too, just like our culture. So with that background, it's understandable that after coming out of this, to the true God of all, you would want nothing to do with pagan idolatry, right? You wouldn't want to see the temples, you wouldn't want to go near them, you wouldn't want to smell the meat, and you definitely would not want to buy the meat from the temples. Why? Because of your past. You think something's tainted about this meat because it's sacrificed to idols, that it's dirty, that it's unclean. At the very least, no matter how much Bible you'd had, you'd probably be very uncomfortable around those temples. In this scenario, you're the weaker brethren. 
you think that food sacrifice to idols is actually something different than food sacrifice to nothing, when physically it's exactly the same. Even though it's not sin, you think that eating it is sin. Your conscience hasn't yet been informed by scripture. You're still weak in this area. To go against the conscience is to defile the conscience. Even though this particular action isn't inherently sinful, the weak defile their own conscience by doing that action. That's why in our verse it says, but some, through former association with idols, eat, meat, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Again, if you want more information about the conscience and weaken strong brethren, go check out Romans 14. Okay. But for now, let's look at uh, verse 8 to see what Paul says to these weaker brethren. He says, food will not commend us to God. We're not worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. Which sounds just like Jesus in Mark 7. In Mark 7, 18, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters his heart, enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods, even food sacrificed to idols, clean. Paul's a really wise pastor here. Right? He knows the weak need more instruction. They need more teaching. But he doesn't steamroll them. He gently instructs them and then actually moves on. So having shown the pride of the weak, Paul now amps up the heat on the strong. So we're going to see the sin of the strong here. Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is the only command in the entire chapter. He says, take care. Be careful. Do, be careful to not be a stumbling block. Um, now that, that's like very religious language. So to stumble someone or to, to be a stumbling block to someone is to intentionally or unintentionally lead them to sin. If someone has a weak conscience, they can't see because of their lack of knowledge. The strong who have this knowledge can sometimes trip them up, so they fall to their destruction. So Paul says, be careful, be careful. Right, now, now in my own sinful heart, I, I can hear objections rising. Right, my, my heart would say, what? Why am I being held accountable for someone else's sin? It's not my fault they don't know the scripture. I, I don't... I don't think that movies are evil. I don't think hobo is a bad word. I don't think meat sacrificed to idols is unclean. If it isn't sin, why can't I enjoy it? Okay. To answer that, I want us to look back at verse 6 for a second. So you just look up verse 6 with me. Yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, Paul's really clever here. These knowledgeable, strong Corinthian Christians, they would have nodded their head vigorously and said, yeah, 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 that's totally true. All those false gods are false. The true God's a true God. But in doing that, they actually entirely lost the argument. And let me show you why. Verse 6 is basically saying, it's not about you. It's not about your rights. It's about God. Right? Like many of us wear the he is greater than I shirts. Like isn't the whole meaning of that logo meaning that this life is not about us but about him? I think some of, someone's wearing one. I saw one today. Um, <laughs> right. Okay, great. <laughs> so the whole point of that verse, or the whole point of that logo, right, is to point to God as the ultimate, not ourselves. Meaning it's about him, not us. Verse 6 says, there's one God the Father. All things are from him, and we exist solely for him. He made us, he owns us, he rules us, he created us. He's king over all. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for him. Now tell me, tell me. What rights can we assert against the king of the universe? It goes, verse 6 goes on. There's one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All things are through him, and we exist only through him. We're saved by his blood. We didn't establish our own salvation. He established it for us by his death, burial, and resurrection. We don't live to glorify ourselves. We live to glorify him. So for us today, right, what does that mean for us? It means, dear Christian, your life's not your own. It's not about having the most fun. It's not about making the most of your pleasures, even legitimate pleasures. It's not about your friends, your family, your future, fantastic life. In verses 1 through 3, Paul destroyed the foundations of arrogant knowledge, right? And he established the new foundation of edifying love. The arrogant man says, life's about me. The humble man says, life's about God and loving him and being known by him. So if you're the stronger brethren here today, I want to repeat verse 9 to you. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And in this context, what's that stumbling block that Paul is speaking of? Uh, Look with me at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? This means that the strong in the Corinthian church were not just buying meat in the market, but they're actually going to the temples and feasting there. Now, does this mean they're actually worshiping false gods? Paul says no. Very clear, right? But imagine that you were one of the weaker brethren that got saved, like, say, six months ago. You're walking around through town, you know, mind your own business, and then BAM! Pagan temple. And you look up to him. He's a godly man, he's a teacher of the word, he's a role model, he's a, he's a mentor. But seeing him in the temple causes you to have this flood of memories. You remember the music, and the worship, and the dancing, and the smells, and the idolatry, and the morality. And you think, that's sinful. But Brother Bobby, I hope no one hears his name Bobby. Brother Bobby is doing that, so I I guess it's okay? Um, At the very least, you'd be very, very confused. As you walked closer to the temple, I don't know, maybe you have to go that way to get home. If this strong brother is particularly dense, he might even encourage you to eat some steak with him. And you might bow to the pressure eat, even though you think it's sin. This is the situation that Paul must address. And, and make no mistake, he doesn't treat this lightly at all. Um, look at verse 11. With the full authority of an apostle, he says, So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. In the original language, the emphasis is actually so that the sentence reads like this. It says, for destroyed, in the front, is the weak one, by your knowledge, the brother for whom Christ died. How's that a contrast to love which builds up? The strong in the Corinthian church become so puffed up, so big-headed, they didn't really care if they stumbled their brother. They maybe they didn't even know. They asserted the right to eat in the temple. They considered themselves as more important than their brethren. The real issue isn't whether meat sacrificed to idols is sin or not. The real issue is that they're destroying their brother. Now, I think this ties really closely to a question I've heard a lot. Uh, people ask, is blank sin? Right? Like, can I do this, basically, asking for permission? Uh, here's a better question for you. Is it glorifying to God and loving? Instead of trying to find the outer boundaries of like, Christian decency as if, I don't know, you want to like, push that line, Why don't we come to the center and seek the whole entire purpose of Christianity, which is to glorify God and love people? So just quick aside, think that. Next time you think that question, think instead, is it glorifying to God and loving? Is it glorifying to God and loving? So Paul says that the strong destroy their brother, but let's keep going. Verse 12. 
Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul is saying, you insist on your rights, you destroy your brother, you sin against them, you wound their conscience. But not only that, ultimately you sin against Christ. And I read that and I'm like, whoa, what are we talking about here? We're talking about eating meat. So how, how does meat lead to sinning against Christ? How, how can this be? Um, before I, I show how this can be, um, I want to argue this. All of us actually already believe Paul. Okay? And this is, I think this is because of how we treat children. Right? So again, I'm David's cousin. Uh, I, I live with Owen and the whole family. So he's four, about to turn four. Uh, when I'm around Owen, I intuitively act differently with him than I'm with, with you all or with, with my peers. Right? For example, we play with Nerf guns. Uh, we do piggyback rides and we talk about Buzz Lightyear. Now, these are also, but there are also some things I don't do with Owen, right? I don't use words like stupid around him. Um, I don't talk about hard topics like abuse. I don't watch violent movies with him, right? We all do this with children we love. I, I hope so, at least. We, we modify our behavior. We change our speech. We restrict ourselves from even legitimate things, right? Why? Because they're weak. They're children. We intuitively know we ought to protect them, not stumble them. We ought to love them not hurt them. And we would rightly condemn any person who says, I have the right to talk about whatever I want, do whatever I want, and be wherever or whatever, be whatever I want, whether children around or not. Okay. To violate my nephew's conscience and stumble him, for, for example, let's say I, I would teach him to say words that he thought were sinful, even if they're technically not. That would destroy him. That would be sinning against him. That would be wounding his conscience and sinning against his parents. Right. Everyone follow me? But that's exactly what Paul's saying, isn't it? Love dictates that I forsake anything for the sake of my weaker brother. So now let's move on to meat and how that means you can sin against Christ. If you're a believer here today, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you have inestimable value. Inestimable, meaning without count. Not, because, well, not only because you're made in the image of God, as all humans are, but because the Father's love is upon you, because the righteousness of Jesus Christ covers you, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We're valuable believers, not because we're good, but because God is good. But if that's true for you, believer, that's also true for your brothers and sisters too, right? When we see a brother in Christ, we must also believe Jesus Christ died for him too. Just as he rescued me from sin and hell and death, he rescued him. When we see our sister in Christ, we say, Jesus Christ died for her too. He set his divine, lavish, redeeming love upon her, just as he's redeemed me. This kinship, this family, right, ought to burst out of our hearts in acts of love, particularly gospel love, right? The other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, defines this gospel love in this way. But this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Why? Because Jesus died for them. Being a Christian means I love what Christ loves. Dear Christian, he loves your brothers and sisters literally unto death. What about you? And that brings us to our last point, a gospel love. Deny yourself to love your brother. Deny yourself to love your brother. Last verse, verse 13. Therefore, 
If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul puts himself in an example of those who deny, an example of someone who denied himself the exercise of legitimate rights in order to love others well. With great joy, he's willing to forsake meat entirely for the sake of his brother. Now, is that inconvenient? Yeah. Uh, is it hard? Like, definitely. Is it glorifying to God? Absolutely. That's the, actually the famous context of, verse, of the verse uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. You all know this, right? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How can mundane things like eating and drinking be to the glory of God? By loving your brother. By loving your brother even more than your rights. Um, chapter 9 actually deals entirely with Paul's example. Um, and I'll let Mr. Gavin preach that for you all. So I'll let him in my comments there. But we actually have a better example than Paul. Uh, turn with me to Philippians 2. And you all know this passage too, because this is one of Eric's favorites, I think. Philippians chapter 2. Pick up with, uh, with me in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness, sorry. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being made, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is the supreme example of one who forsook all his rights for the sake of love. He did nothing from selfishness or conceit. In humility, he considered us more significant than himself. He looked not to his own interests, but to ours. He had and has the right to judge all the nations and crush them with a rod of iron, as Psalm 2 says. Yet being God, he laid aside his exalted status and his divine rights, meaning that he denied himself the legitimate exercise of them to become the God-man. He took the form of a servant, became a poor carpenter, and humbled himself even to the point of death for us. Or to paraphrase the theologian John Calvin, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that he might make us sons of men into the sons of God. So if you call yourself a Christian today, I want to ask you, do you know this abundant, overflowing love of God in Jesus Christ? If you do, how can you grow in your love for your fellow Christians, even the ones you're sitting right next to? How can you be praying for them and caring for them and speaking to them, bearing burdens for them? Particularly from today's sermon, how can you deny yourself your own rights for their good? Are you doing this at all? Whether it's the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, or to say stupid, or hobo, or use, social, or use social media, or to watch movies, go to school dances, to date, to have expensive clothes, to play certain video games, to listen to certain music, to enjoy social privileges and status, whatever it is, the question truly is, if a weak brother thinks it's sin, what do you love more, your rights or your brother? Can you gladly lay that right aside to glorify God and love your spiritual family for whom Christ died? This love brings us back to our foundation, right? Our foundation of edifying love. Why, why do we even love our brother or our sister? 
not our rights. It's because we're not our own. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Christ died for us so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, our rights and our arrogance and our boasting, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Or as that catechism says, the Heidelberg Catechism, Article 1. Question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me, listen here, heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of all. Yet you humbled yourself to become the servant of all. The angels glorify you. The mountains sing for you. The waves crash for you. The stars shine for you. And yet you took on the form of a man and died for the sins of men, for our sins, Lord. Teach us to love your people like you do, to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses, and to follow you even unto death for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Yeah, don't break it. <laughs>